Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. Can I turn with me over to chapter 18 of the story? We're looking at the book of Daniel this morning. A couple things that we've gone through in the story week after week after week are we see transpire and we see happen is that, number one, that God is in control. God is the creator. God is sovereign. God is the one calling the shots. We sang that song today, It is well with my soul. It is well. The only reason that we are able to sing that song is because of the reality of God being in control. If God was not in control, then that song is just a a wish. That song is a reality, and sometimes we sing that 90% of it's faith, but sometimes we can sing that song and we're able to proclaim that song because God is on the throne. God is the creator. He is sovereign. He's in control. That's what we see week after week after week. Kings come, kingdoms rise, empires fall. The, 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 The story of history changes, but there's one constant throughout all of it, and that's that God is on the throne. And so we see that. That is the one unchanging thing in the story that we see that we are going to continue to see and that we see in our lives today is that God sits on the throne. Number two, we see this, that mankind is created by God in the very image of God and therefore important and valuable and precious to the Lord. But as precious and important and valuable, mankind is sinful and rebellious. That we see this transpired even from the very beginning, placed in a beautiful garden, given all the luxuries of of walking with the Lord and the promises of God and rebelling against that and choosing to go their own way. And we see that begin to unravel things as as we progress through the story and the trouble that gets humankind into is just the reality of the lost and brokenness, yet, yet in the midst of all of that, loved by God. God loves people. He loves his people. Third, God is on a mission to redeem a lost and broken world. God is on mission. God is on a mission to redeem that which has been broken and lost and in darkness. God is on mission to redeem and save and reveal. This is what God is doing week after week after week. God continues to be on mission to redeem those in darkness. Now, as we see the, the history of Israel in the, in the Old Testament, as we've gone through this, Israel is brought out of slavery in Egypt, brought into the promised land, and they get into the promised land, and things, things are, are difficult for a while. Because as soon as they get there, the, the, the wagon really veers off the road and goes into the ditch of idolatry. And it stays in that ditch for a long time. The one thing that plagues Israel every single week is this this lure, this desire for idolatry and following after other gods. It plagues Israel from day one, constantly pursuing other gods, forsaking the Lord. And so finally, after the Lord has given repeated warnings and words and care for the people, they are sent off into exile. The nation of Israel sent off into exile, the the northern kingdom into Syria, the southern kingdom into Babylon, and there's nothing but brokenness. 
in the exile. Now, as we open the book of Daniel, it's hard for me to imagine something more relevant for us today in the time that we live. This book speaks to us because it it shows us a God that is in control in the midst of all of the chaos of the nations raging against the Lord, trying to hinder and stop everything that the Lord is doing. Yet God is in control. And it is my is my desire for us as God's people. It is my desire for us as, as, as his body, as his family called by his name, that we would be the people of God that in the midst of everything, that we would be so thoroughly convinced that God is in control and God is on the throne, that no matter where we go or what happens or what, what transpires in our lives at work or at home in our neighborhoods or at the shop or whatever happens, that we can be so thoroughly convinced of this that we can live our lives fulfilling the very purposes of God. God has got a purpose in, in each one of our daily existences. God's got a purpose in all of it. God's got a purpose where you work. It's not an accident you end up there. It's not an accident you live where you live or shop where you shop. God has got a purpose in all of it. And because he is on the throne, we can, be, we can be confident and assured that no matter what happens, God can use us for the advancement of his kingdom and his purposes. Because God is on the throne, we can be confident of this. God is on the throne. We pick up the story of Daniel in Babylon, in exile, as a young man. And before, as we get into this, as a just precursor to the story, I want to bring Jason up. And if we can get the mic, here we go. I want Jason just to, Jason, share with me a story a number of months ago. And, and as we, I was talking to him this week, I thought, Jason, would you please share the story? Because I believe this is something that is relevant for us today and that we need to hear. And it goes really quite specifically along with the story of Daniel. So, Jason, would you just share with us some of the things that transpired in the years past? Yeah, so uh, about, so for those who don't know, I, I work in IT, and about three and a half years ago, um, and I worked downtown Chicago, uh, which is you know, a very large uh, population of people that, that work in, in, in the Chicago area. So um, about three and a half years ago, I had been working for a company for uh, seven years, been working for the same individual for about um, seven years, and uh, things had gone very well. Um, this individual had, had been promoted time after time, and as he got promoted, he, he brought me along with him. And people got used to seeing the two of us together. Um, he ended up ultimately as the CIO at the company, a large global organization, and uh, I, I worked directly for him, with him, People got used to seeing us together because we made a good team um, and, and things were going well. Um, and then one day, about three and a half years ago, I was preparing for uh, a, a budget meeting, a budget uh, review, and I came across some inconsistencies in the budget to the tune of fifty to $60,000 every month. And uh, went to, uh, you know, I, I investigated, spent the next few days trying to figure out what was going on and over those few days, it became apparent that uh, my boss, the CIO, was just outright stealing 
from the from the company. And uh, it, it was I, I I knew that uh, because of my association with him, because of my closeness with him, that um, when I brought this to light, that I would be um, it, it would it had the potential to go very badly for me as well, and probably end my career at this company, maybe my career in IT. But regardless, um, went to uh, went to the company's leadership, um, explained, um, presented the evidence, and to their credit, they they didn't laugh laugh me out of the room because everybody trusted this guy. This was a, a man who had built up a public persona, of you know, and, and a, a public character that he wanted everyone um, to to think of, of you know what he what he was. But um, the reality was he had, he had, during his career he had stolen nine million dollars from the company, which is a lot of money. So, um, so uh, they they performed their own investigation, and after a few days, it became apparent that it, he, he was indeed stealing from the company. They uh, questioned him, and um, he, he and, and they let him go. So over the next few weeks, um, it, it, it became public what what had gone on, and um, the company began to investigate internally. Um, a lot of that investigation turned on me because of my relationship with him, and. The, the way that we worked together and the fact that, you know, I worked directly for him. And uh, um, it, 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 was, it was tough for me because it, um, the, the, the company turned on me and began to look at me as a suspect. And, and at the same time, I was scared because I saw the full weight of the federal government begin to come down on my former boss. Um, a lot of they, – they threw the book at him, the book, the kitchen sink, everything. And uh, – had the potential to go very badly for me too, just because of, of my association with guilt by association. You've heard of that. It's it's very real. And when the federal government wants to come after you, they, you know, they 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 do. They usually succeed. So, the time came for uh, after a lot of internal investigation and some very aggressive uh, um, questioning that I had to go through um, internally with the company, the FBI. It, it, it um, I, I had to meet with the FBI and uh, discuss it with them. So it, it was about two things. Um, as, as I walked into the room, it was about um, um, the case against my boss, and, and they wanted to build that case, or uh, my, my, my former boss now. So they wanted to build that case, but they also wanted to look for inconsistencies in my story. So it was uh, as much about me as it was about uh, my former boss. And uh, walking into that room, I, I don't know why, but it didn't hit me until I got into the room that, I was all alone in this. As I walked into the room, there was an attorney for the company that I worked for sitting there um, and a chair next to her. And then across the table, there was an FBI agent and um, a, uh, an assistant U.S. attorney from the Chicago area. So for the first time, it hit me that there was no one in that room to represent me. The attorney was there to represent the company. They'd made it clear that I was on my own, that if I had done anything wrong, that they were not going to protect me and that they were not, uh, they were not going to shield me from any of the ramifications of that. The FBI and the U.S. attorney, of course, I knew that uh, they were there to look for any kind of inconsistencies in my story as well. So as I sat down, um, the fact that I was alone just really, really, hit me and sunk in, and I knew that uh, this could be the end of my career if, if the government indeed chose to come after me because I didn't have anybody on my side. So uh, the questioning began, 
Um, they started with the basics, you know, my name, my address, um, and my, my social security number. And when we got to that, the, the, the uh, U.S. attorney, she kind of cocked her head and said, that's not a social security from around here. Where are you from? And I said, well, I was born in South Dakota. She said, so was I. I said, oh, interesting. So, so, we, so I said, well, yeah, I was born in uh, Mitchell, South Dakota, but actually I grew up in the Black Hills of South Dakota, and that's where my parents still live. She said, well, my parents live in the Black Hills of South Dakota. And I don't know how many of you even know that South Dakota is a state. A lot of people think it's a foreign country, but it is actually a state. So, but uh, but it, it's a very low population state. So to meet someone from South Dakota from the Black Hills, was it, it's, it's very unique. That doesn't happen a lot. And uh, as as we continued, I, I said, well, you know, she said, well, what town do your parents live in? I said, well, they live in Custer, South Dakota. She said, you're kidding. She said, my parents live in Custer, South Dakota. <laughs> and uh, she said, well, what, what do your parents do? I said, well, they run the newspaper in town. She said, you're kidding. She said, I was out there last year on vacation visiting my parents, and they said, you know what, there's these great friends of ours that you have to meet the Najax in Custer, South Dakota, and they took her down to the newspaper. She knew my parents. Not only did she know my parents, but as we got to talking, I had just returned from a vacation out there, and um, I, my, my parents had introduced me to, the, to this guy by the name of Matt Brown. Turns out was her brother. So not only did she know my parents, and her parents knew my parents, and, um, but I knew her brother. I was. I had just been introduced to her brother. Our kids were had, had hung out at uh, one of the events out there, and uh, as it, so, so to put this in perspective, as, as we were talking to, I, I kind of glanced over at the attorney that was there for the for the company and just waiting to pounce on me and any inconsistencies. And she didn't have a single note on her piece of paper. She was kind of tapping her pen on her paper, waiting for this to uh, you know to get over for this bond. She could see that we were bonding. <laughs> We spent the first 20 to 25 minutes of, of this, what was supposed to be, um, you know, an intense interrogation, um, talking about our vacations in South Dakota, talking about where we grew up. I, I got to know that, you know, her favorite part of, of, of South Dakota and what she went out there for every year with her family was to see the Buffalo Roundup, and we talked about, you know, things like that. But to put it in perspective, the greater Chicagoland area has a population of 10 million people, they estimate. Custer, South Dakota has a population of 1,980 people. So the chances of us meeting in downtown Chicago at the exact time when I had no one as my advocate, when I had no one on my side, God arranged that and God divinely intervened in, in my life in a situation where I was, I was helpless. I was completely helpless. But God ensured that that wasn't the case. And as I walked out of that meeting an hour and a half later, um, I, was, uh, I left that building, I was walking back to my building, and I called my parents and told them what had happened. They couldn't believe it. Um, as, as when I walked back into uh, the, the office building where I worked, my new boss was waiting for me because he wanted to hear, you know, I'm not sure if I was going to jail or what was going to happen. So he, he called me into his office. And as I started to tell him the story, he kind of kicked back, he put his hands up and uh, behind his head and, you know, looked at the wall for a little bit. I had no indication that this man was a Christian. I mean, he, he certainly didn't act like it in the time period that I knew him. But, and then he looked at me and he said, 
that's a case of divine intervention if I've ever heard of it. <laughs> and it, it, it really, really is. And, and, and as I thought about that, as I thought about that later, I reflected a lot on, on it because I've, I've condensed, you know, a few months of my life into a few minutes here, but it really affected my life in a lot of ways. And, uh, I was very scared walking into that room. I knew I was alone. And, uh, but God cares. He showed me in that, that he cares about the events of our lives. He cares so much about us that he made sure that, that Tara, the, the, the U.S. attorney who grew up in South Dakota, he made sure that she went to pre-law school, that she went to law school, that she got hired by the federal government, that she got placed in Chicago, and that she got placed on this case so that we could meet on the 42nd floor of an office building in downtown Chicago at a time when I needed it. He made sure that she met my parents a year before any of this was going to happen. I had no idea. This blindsided me, but God wasn't blindsided by any of it. And he set it up. He set up events years in advance so that when I needed it, he showed me just how much he cared about us and his, his people. Amen. Thanks, Jason. So after Jason got out of jail, it was... <laughs> Thanks for sharing that, Jason. appreciate that. The one thing that's the constant in Jason's story and what we read in the book of Daniel is that God is in control. God is in control. God is always in control. And here in, in Babylon, where Daniel is located with his, with his three buddies, this is, a, this is a place that is completely and absolutely hostile to the word of the Lord. They want nothing to do with God. Daniel's in some of the most hostile environment that you could possibly imagine. I mean, there's no freedom of religion here. You do what the king says, period. And so we're going to read a little bit, and we're going to have to we're just skim through this quickly, okay? I apologize for that. I, I wish we could sit down and read this whole chapter together because this is such a fascinating chapter. If you're just kind of starting the story or if maybe you're here for the first time this week, jump into the book of Daniel, please. This book, especially if you're a guy, I mean, this is like pure adrenaline the whole time. This is awesome, awesome stuff they've got going on here. And so we're going to just read, we're going to read a little bit to give us a context. Then we're going to jump over to uh, the king's dream and Daniel's interpretation. Then we're going to summarize a bit of the, the, the fiery furnace and the ordeal with that. So stick with me as we run through this, okay? And then we're going to wrap some things up at the end. But these stories were given to us for our benefit. God recorded these stories for us. And so let's dig into this as we start on uh, page 2. 249 in the story, chapter 18. And this gives us the context for which Daniel and his, the three, the quartet from uh, Israel were working into. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. So 
He's basically taking all the, the best and the brightest out of Israel, bringing them into his kingdom. This serves not only his purposes, but makes sure that Israel is left without some of his brightest leaders. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. So they were going to be reprogrammed from the ground up. All the, the learning, the religion, the, the culture of Babylon was going to get programmed into them. They, in a sense, wipe, wipe, wipe their past out and give them a new future in Babylon. And I want us to remember, as we read these stories, this happened over a period of decades, not weeks. So as we read this, this isn't everything that has happened within the first week Daniel got there. Sometimes we can read this and think, man, that'd be so awesome if that happened to me. But this happened over a lifetime, okay? Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Here we get the upper story. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid, my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink, why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, said, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this test and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables and said, To these four young men, here's the upper story again, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. So the king now, after a period of, 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 of the re-education of the Jewish quartet, they're brought before the king, and the king finds them head and shoulders above everybody else. It says they are ten times better than anyone else from all the other nations that have been exiled. These guys were the top. They were the cream of the crop. They were smarter. They were more able to understand. These guys were the best. Ten times better than anyone else. So, they're put, they're brought into the king's service. They are working for probably the most powerful individual on the face of the earth at this time. This king is in charge. Nebuchadnezzar is in charge. He decides when nations are exiled and destroyed. He decides when other kingdoms are raised up. I mean, this guy is the most powerful man in the room wherever he goes. And so here he is, Daniel and his three friends working for the most powerful man who just happens to be, he's not, this guy's not a Christian, okay? This guy's not following the Lord. He's not serving the Lord's purposes in his mind. We're going to find out, though, what happens. So the king now, as Daniel and his three friends are working for the king, the king has a dream. 
And in this dream, it's troublesome to him. And so the king now goes to his wise men, and there's, there's a number of, he's got a whole cabinet of people who are working for him. Astrologers, magicians, wise men, these guys are all working for the king, and he has a dream. And he goes to the wise men of his court and says, look, I need you to interpret my dream for me. And so the wise men say, great, no problem, we can do that. Just tell us the dream. And then the king says, you know what? I'm not going to tell you the dream. You've got to tell me the interpretation and the dream. And the guys are like, whoa, 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 hold on a second here. You've got to be kidding me. And the king says, by the way, if you don't do this, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to tear you piece by piece and turn your house into rubble. Okay, so you need to do this right now. Well, this is what the guys say. The astrologers answer the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. So the king was very pleased with this answer. No, no, no. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. He's like, man, you guys are all done. We're, you, we're done. You guys are going to put you to death right now. So the decree was issued to put all the wise men to death. And the men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arak, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom intact. He asked the king's official, officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? That's an understatement. That sounds a little bit harsh, right? Those guys, you, they had to tell the dream and the interpretation. They said, no, so everyone's dead. We're wiping everyone out. At this, Ariak explained the matter to Daniel. And at this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends. He urged them to plead for mercy from God of heaven concerning this mystery. He knows where to turn. He remembers that there is a God sitting on the throne. He remembers that there is a God in control at all times. So he says, we need to go to the Lord. We need to plead. We need to call out to him. We need his help so that, it, that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you, you have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. So they bring him to the king. The king says, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise men. Enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery 
he has asked about, right? So like not starting off on a good foot, right? Not, not how you want to answer the guy who's going to kill you if you don't tell him. But this is what Daniel says. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Points back to the Lord again. There is a God in heaven who reveals mystery. He has shown the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. And he begins to describe the, to the king what is going to transpire in the coming centuries. There will be various kingdoms and different other will be followed by other kingdoms lesser and weaker than the one before. And after Daniel explains the whole thing to him, this is what King Nebuchadnezzar says. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and order that an offering and incense be prepared, presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. I love this. Daniel, at this opportunity, has, has a moment to say, you know what, yeah, this is about me here, right? I told you the interpretation. The deal is done. I've, I'm going to get promoted. I'm going to make all kinds of money. I'm going to be famous. Everyone's going to talk about me. I'm going to be the most important person wherever I go. And yet Daniel points back to the Lord. And the king, because of this, gives praise and honor to the Lord. The king recognizes this wasn't from Daniel. Daniel was used, Daniel was helpful, but this ultimately came from the Lord because no man can tell the dream that I had and give the interpretation like this. This was the Lord. Now, let's turn over to page 255. So we're going to leave Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar, and we're going to move over now to Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three others that came with Daniel in the exile to Babylon, who were working for the king. So this is what happens. The king decides to make a massive 90-foot-tall statue. And what he wants everyone to do is when they hear the sound of music, they are to bow down and worship the statue. So there's a decree, 90-foot-tall. I mean, this is, people can see this from probably miles and miles and miles away. As soon as the music plays, everyone is to worship the statue. There's no freedom of religion here, Okay. You don't get a choice, because if you don't bow down and worship, you're going to be killed, and your house is going to get turned to rubble. This king loves to turn people's houses to rubble. He loves to kill people, loves to turn them into rubble. So he says, look, here's what's going to happen. If you don't bow down and worship, you're done. Well, the music plays, and sure enough, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not bowing down to worship the statue. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the, the horn, the flute, the zither, the, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, well, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? So the three said, reply to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Wow. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, 
the God we serve, is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious, and his attitude towards them changed. Remember, they were working for him, and they had been found head and shoulders above everybody else. They had been promoted to positions of power, and now he's really ticked. So he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie them up. And there's no escape for these guys. I mean, this furnace is getting is seven times hotter. He's going to get the strongest guys. He's going to tie them up. He's going to throw them in the fire. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up the three. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. So here they are. They bring them up to the furnace. They throw them in from the top. There must have been like two layers or something where you could see what was happening. You could see them roasting inside. And they threw them in. The guys that were throwing them in were, were, were destroyed by the fire itself. Then... King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So the three came out of the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. You could imagine this, what this would have been like to have these guys come out of this, walk out of the fire. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was their, the hair on their head singed, their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, this is the most powerful guy on the planet to remember, this guy is in charge. He is in control. He is the King Almighty. He says, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces, and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. This is awesome. This is awesome. The glory and the power of God is not limited to Jerusalem or Israel. His power goes beyond the borders of Israel. His power goes beyond the temple and the priesthood and the people his, his power and his glory is expanding throughout the earth. It's not, it's not given a geographical location. The power of God is seen over everywhere. This is good news for us. It's a good reminder for us that the presence of the Lord, the power of God, it's not limited to a church service on Sunday morning. It's not limited to this little location, 900 Ridgeway Avenue in Munster. It's not located just in this place 
from, from about 9.30, it depends if you get here, maybe 9.45, on to 11 o'clock or whatever. It's not limited to that. It goes beyond that. The power of God, the glory of God is advancing throughout all the earth. And because he is always in control. God is always in control. He's able, he's able to nourish and sustain three young Jewish boys. In the, in, in just eating vegetables, right? We know that that's not healthy. We know you've got to eat some meat, right? <laughs> you eating just vegetables is not going to go well for you, okay? I'm sorry. If you're vegetarian, I'm sorry. Got to eat some meat sometimes. He's able to nourish and sustain. God's able to give dreams, and he's able to give interpretation. He's able to, de- he's able to deliver from the fire. He's able to bring people out of the fire. It's because he is in control. See, in this, we see the incredible, amazing, supernatural grace of God. Because where Israel had come from, where Daniel and the three had come from, they came, they came out of Jerusalem and out of Israel because they had com- the Israelites had completely forsook the Lord. They were in Babylon because, they re- because the Israelites had refused to worship the Lord or listen to his word. They're in exile because their people had decided that they were no longer going to serve and worship the Lord. And here they are in a foreign land, far from home. No one's going to know what's going on. And yet the Lord is still able to deliver and lavish his grace and mercy upon the very people who had walked away from him. This is the grace of God. It's undeserved. It's unmerited kindness and mercy of God in the face of disobedience. And here we read about young men who went away as foreign exchange students to, to the University of Babylon. I mean, these guys were given the best food. They're given the best education. These guys were the most important people in the area. They're working for the king. This isn't some, they're, they're not just some low-down assistant somewhere in the basement. These guys are the top dogs. They're giving advice to the king. They had every opportunity to say, man, forget that stuff we learned as kids. And by the way, they didn't come with their Bibles and podcasts of sermons and stuff to, to rehash what they had learned. Man, what they took with them in their mind is all that they had to go off of and all that they knew about the Lord. They weren't able to go down to the library or Christian bookstore to pick up some good reading for, to, to help encourage them. They came with nothing. All they had to go off of is what they learned as kids. And here they are in a foreign place, lavished with power and probably money and influence. Every opportunity to forsake the Lord at this point, say, man, let's live the good life. Let's, man, we, let's live it up. Our parents are not going to know. Our parents may be dead. And now we're supposed to go work for the guy who actually ordered the execution of our people and the destruction. They had, like, man, let's just live it up. Let's forget about this thing, man. Let's just do it. They never forget that God was right there with them. They were convinced that the Lord Almighty was bigger than the boundaries of Israel. God was right there with them. And to see, in spite of Israel's disobedience and failure, God still has a purpose for his people. 
Remember, we go back to Genesis chapter 12 and God's promise to Abraham that your, your descendants are going to be a blessing to the rest of the world, that all the nations will be blessed through you, that there is going to be a pass-through of blessing from you to the rest of the world. And I'm going to use you and your descendants to be a blessing to everybody else. And now we look at this and think, well, where is that going to happen, Lord? I mean, this, that promise is done. And here we see the lives of, of, of the four from, from Israel making a stand, following after the Lord, following his purposes in the most hostile environment imaginable. As we read this, I wonder what your work environment is like. Now, I doubt anyone is forcing you to worship an idol or else your house will be turned to rubble. Doubt that's happening. But your environment where you live, you shop, you work, you eat, does it embrace the purposes of the Lord? And unless you work for Colas Bookstore, I doubt it. And even though this is 2,500 years ago and 6,700 miles away, the environment that we live in today can be just as hostile to the things of the Lord. The environments that we live and work and, and, and do all the things that we do, it's not embracing the purposes of God. It's not following and pursuing the Lord. It's not taking a stand for righteousness. So often it's just the opposite. See, in 1 Peter chapter 2, we are called and rightly identified as foreigners and exiles. Where we live and work, we, this place is not our home. This place is not our, our, not our final resting place. We don't belong to this earth. We belong to the kingdom of heaven. We belong to a new Jerusalem, a new place. This is not our home. We live as exiles and foreigners right where we are. That's not something that, that happens to us if we ever get exiled from America or from Indiana or wherever we live. God says in his kingdom, when we come to Jesus Christ, that his purposes now supersede our purposes. And our identity with, with him supersedes our identity that we have as individuals. It's his identity and his purposes that we now assume. He's calling us to be ambassadors for his kingdom and his purposes right where we are every single day. And I know some of you are thinking, man, at work, where I'm at block or wherever I'm at, I've blown it. I have blown it, man. I've not had a good testimony. I've not, I've not stuck up for Jesus Christ. I've not shared the gospel with anyone. I haven't done any of these things. I think, man, this is good news for us. Because so did Israel. Israel really blew it too. The fact they were in exile is because they blew it. But God wasn't done with them yet. See, that's the very reason he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take our place on the cross, to die for our sins, because we had blown it. So we didn't have a testimony. We followed other things. We did other things. But God redeemed us. And he saved us. And he forgave us. And now he's given us a purpose. Right where we are. 
God has got a redemptive purpose for, for your life. Right where you are, at your work, at home, at the store, at the restaurant, He has got a redemptive purpose for your life. And we can be confident in His ability to carry that redemptive purpose through because He is in control. That's, the, that's the, the, the overarching message of the book of Daniel. The big picture of the book of Daniel is that God is in control. That is undeniable. You can't read these stories and, and question whether God is really in control. Because He is. He is in control. First, or, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.20. I want to read this. We're going to close. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is exactly what we see in the book of Daniel. A faith in God that translates into a proclamation of who he is. That in the midst of the most hostile environment possible, that God Almighty still has has a word to be proclaimed and a name to be marveled at and loved and worshiped. We ourselves, as God's people, are living as ambassadors for the Lord in a place that is hostile to God. And our identity as ambassadors isn't something we just stumble into. It is a blood-bought reality of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. That is the blood-bought reality of what Jesus Christ has done. And through the cross, Jesus is redeeming people for himself and unleashing us as his people to impact a broken world around us. We're going to close with communion as the ushers can begin to distribute that. A few months ago, I'm at the gym, and I'm at the gym. It's, it's, a, it's like a CrossFit gym, which is a little bit different from a normal gym, but most gyms are all the same, Right? You go to a gym, you work out, and if you're a guy, you know who the strongest guy is in the place at all times, right? You know who's the biggest and strongest if you work out at a gym. And ladies, one of the things is, guys, we go to a gym, the one thing you don't talk about is, is weakness or vulnerability. You are trying to be just as tough as you possibly can be at the gym. So you don't talk about your weakness or anything, man, because you're trying to be just as big and bad as that dude that you know is the biggest and baddest guy in the gym. And I'm at the gym, and, and the, the kind of lead instructor's there, and, you know, Metallica's pumping through the speakers as loud as it possibly can go. And, and we had, the workout had finished, and most everyone had left, and it was just basically just me and this guy in the gym left, and it's hard for me to 
to really share my faith one-on-one. I'm, I, I fumble through my words. It's, it's awkward for me. It's hard. And a lot of times I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm afraid what people think of me. And so as we're there talking, I just get the sense that God has got a purpose for me and this guy to have a conversation at this moment at 6.30 in the morning with Metallica pounding through the speakers. He wants he has a message for this guy that owns a gym. And here we are in the gym, and we begin to talk about the purposes of the Lord. And I begin to share the gospel with this guy. And I thought, it is the Lord. It is the Lord who makes these opportunities possible. Because he is on the throne, he's able to open doors and give opportunity to each one of us to speak about the things of the Lord in the most hostile environment. Look, when you go to the gym, people aren't talking about the things of the Lord. They got their own thing going on. And here we are, me and this guy, just talking about God. And the, the word I felt the Lord had for this guy was a little bit hard. And so, I mean, I'm just kind of just gently bringing this out, talking through these things. And at the end of it, I thought, the guy didn't, you know, he didn't repent on the spot and give his life to Christ and repent and all that kind of stuff. But I thought this, it's because the Lord is in control that there is able to be a testimony in a, in a place that is hostile to the Lord. Where you work, where you live, where you shop, where you eat, there is an opportunity for a testimony of Jesus Christ that is bigger than you. It's bigger than your own inadequacies. It is bigger than your own failings. It's bigger than your own fears. I experienced all those things. But the Lord was still bigger. And he's still able to deliver and make a name for himself. We are going to take communion together. Communion is a celebration. And it's an invitation for us. It's an invitation that week after week we can return to the table. We can return to the table of the Lord and receive mercy and grace that he has made available to us through Jesus Christ. And that no matter what has transpired this week and no matter your failings at work or at school or at home, we are invited back again to celebrate and give thanks and receive the mercy and the grace of Almighty God. And so we take the bread and we give thanks, Lord Jesus, for your broken body that was broken in our place for our sins that we might experience and be given your righteousness. And now we take the cup which is a new covenant in your blood that we could be forgiven because of Jesus' shed blood on the cross. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your mercy and grace that is new every day. Thank you for the invitation to return to you again and come back to your table. Thank you, Lord, that you are in control. And no matter where we go or what we do, Jesus, you are there. In your name we pray.